We interrupt this broadcast for an incoming transmission from the library. It appears that Blue Stocking has been able to make contact, and the steampunk dollhouse will begin transmitting momentarily. Stay tuned for more news from these intrepid defenders of our literary freedoms. My name is Blue Stocking, and I will be your host and your librarian for the next little while. If you're a returning listener, I really, really want to thank you for coming back. If you're new, uh, settle in and listen up. We have quite a bit to discuss today. Uh, so, before we get started, though, um, something I wanted to go into a little bit. Uh, over the last few months, um, as we've been talking about steampunk and the variety that can be found if you know where to look and how to look. Um, it occurred to me that we've never really talked about what exactly does constitute steampunk. I know I've made the declaration that it's my show, so I can say if it's steampunk or not. Um, but we've never really gone into what the wider world sees. Um, and the reason that this popped into my brain, um, because there was a small but rather intense rant from Jamie Go on Twitter this last weekend. Um, if you don't know who Jamie Go is, she is amazing. She describes herself as a fictioneer, a poet, an editrix, and a critic. Um, she is an academic. She is pursuing her PhD with a dissertation on steampunk, and I believe she also got her master's degree um, on steampunk as well. As, as a matter of fact, I have her master's thesis um, because I'll be using it for the own for my own um, article that I'm working on. Um, but she is also uh, one of the editors of the CSRs, Tales from Steampunk Southeast Asia, which we will be discussing in a future episode, uh, just a few months, I think, maybe a month or so, I think, September. Um, and I like her. I, I really like her. I think she's very feisty. I think she's very honest. And I think she has some really important shit to say about steampunk and what steampunk can be. Um, now, I have included a link to her blog in the show notes, as usual. Uh, so you can go find her. But in her Twitter venting, uh, Jamie dis was discussing some of the reviews of the, the aforementioned um, Southeast Asia steampunk anthology. And that some of the reviews were labeling the book as not really steampunk, uh, quote-unquote. Now, her defense um, for the book, for the way it was written, is that A, steampunk is meant to be what we make of it. Um, it doesn't really have a set quote-unquote, way to be, and B, that the stories in the book are designed to be the way they are, they're supposed to be different, they're supposed to take the reader out of the entrenched Eurocentric idea that steampunk gets locked into sometimes, um, and make them see things in a different way, see it from a different perspective. These loud and clanking and sometimes organic technology is used for, for better or worse. It's about building and rebuilding and 
upcycling, if you will, and recycling, and the monstrosities that we sometimes end up with when we can't stop building. Um, and while industrialization did take the West by storm in the 19th century, there have been other manners and modes of industry all over the world. And at the heart of it, steampunk is... It's, it's about ridiculous machines and augmented people and the most insane situations imaginable that also look really fucking cool. Um, that scenario can happen anywhere in the world, including Africa and Southeast Asia and on lots of other brand new made up worlds. Um, if you've ever read, Chi or if you're familiar with China Mieville's uh, Baslog series, it is steampunk as shit. And it takes place in a new world. A brand new created world. China Mieville is an amazing world builder. If you've never read him, I highly suggest all his work, but the Baslog series is clearly my favorite, obviously. We will be discussing that um, in a future episode. It's way too crazy and involved to even really summarize here. Um, so look it up. And before you decide what steampunk is definitely not, take a step back. Broaden your damn minds, even if it's only for a little while, and see a different side. Um, I don't want to have to say this. I shouldn't have to say this, but I probably do need to say this. Um, unless you're one of those steampunks that's that really, truly is only in it for the colonial nostalgia of it all, and I know that those are out there. It saddens me that those are out there. Um, but if that is, is what steampunk is for you, is hearkening back to a time when white people stomped all over the world... Um, if that's the case, I can't help you, so you need to turn off my fucking show. You need to do some soul-searching um, and come back to me later. Now, one other thing that I wanted to cover uh, here at the beginning. Um, I feel it's important, and I know I've mentioned it before, but my intention with this show has never been to school anyone of color or any marginalized group about what should not constitute racism for them. Um... Unlike steampunk, racism is not an area in which I have been personally harmed or disadvantaged. And not that steam, I worded that weird. Um, I know about steampunk. I, I live it, I read it, I write it, I know about it. Um, but racism is not an area in which I have ever been personally harmed or disadvantaged. Um, and while I have people in my life who have had these experiences, I can't ever really know how their experiences have affected them. All I can do is listen and, and try to understand and try to, to do better if that's needed. Um, and this isn't one of those, I have friends who are black. I, um, that's not what I'm saying because I hate when people say that. And if you have to preface anything that you say with, I have friends who are, insert group here, you really need to stop and think about what you're saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I have people in my life that I care about very much who have experienced these things. And all I can do is... is listen to what they have to say and learn from it if I can they are not a teachable moment that is not what they exist for they exist they don't exist to be my friends you know what I'm saying we all need to learn and do better we all need to listen to stuff out to things outside of our own experiences is what I'm trying to say now I'm not bringing this up because of anything that was brought to my attention um because I'm pretty sure that you guys are the quietest damn audience of any podcast ever. Um, so, but it has, it's come up in a few of the shows that I listen to. Uh, so I wanted to just go ahead and put it out there. Um, 
in the end, I'm I'm just a, a steampunk in here uh, with too many thoughts. And there are, I will, I will say, there are many things that I do know. I am an intelligent woman. There are many things I know. But there are so many more things that I don't know. And I want to learn them. And I want to grow. And I want to, to get better. And I feel like that should be the goal in life of every human being. And yet, we'll all likely be dead or mutating soon. Um... Thanks to Overlord Orange and NK Man Baby. So we're going to enjoy the time we have left. And Neezy Shawl has given us so much. So let's talk. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash sp. DH Pod. This week, of course, I'm recommending Everfair by Neasy Shell. It's gorgeous. It's so well done. Um, and with the amount of characters in this book, it helps. Even though it's one narrator, she effectively changes her voice enough that it does help to break it up a little bit because there are so many people in this book. Uh, but the narration is beautiful. It's really well done. Uh, it's very encompassing and enveloping and you will just you'll sink right into it Um, you will be completely lost in in this beautiful violent crazy imaginative world so if you would like to get your very own copy of everfair by neasy shawl visit www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod to download it, or you can download any one of Audible's 180,000 titles if you decide you don't want this beautiful book. So, go to www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod and get yourself a free audiobook. Tell them that Steampunk Dollhouse sent you. Alrighty, kiddos. Uh, let's dive into this one. Now, Normally, if you've listened to the show before, you're familiar with the the format that part one, I do a summary of the book or books at hand, and part two, we kind of rip everything apart and go into the issues. Uh, We're going to do this one a little different today for the simple fact that it is just one book, but it is packed full of stuff, and while the situation that the book is surrounded is built around may be familiar to some of you i went to a public high school in texas in the late 80s and early to mid 90s so the only thing that i knew about the congo free state or what we would know now as the democratic republic of the congo the only thing i really knew about the history was what we gathered or what we were learned while reading heart of darkness by joseph conrad um and that's not the best example of um, how to write about Africa and its inhabitants. Uh, we'll discuss that at a later portion. We've already talked about how his book is problematic, so we'll go into that in the second part. But that being said, um, I really didn't know that much about um, the Congo or the African interior really at all. Um, and I think that that is unfortunately all too common for a lot of kids who went to high school in America. Um, So what we're going to do, we are going to, in order to understand 
why Nizi Shaw wrote the book that she did, where she did. Um, you need to understand the history. And also, it's super important that you understand that the atrocities that she's writing about in Everfair actually happen. I mean, obviously, the, you know, some of it is fictional, but um, what King Leopold did in the Congo was horrific, and well, let's break it down. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's hard to condemn it enough, so we'll, we'll discuss that and break it down. Now, the information in this summary, um, and it's, it's, it's going to be a, a relatively brief summary. There's only so much that I can, I can fit in here. Uh, so the majority of this summary uh, was compiled from a couple of different sources, and one of them was reading King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hochschild. I believe I'm saying that right. I went to YouTube and looked it up just to make sure. Um, and also uh, by listening to a, a two-part series on the Congo from a podcast called the Unbuttoned History Podcast. And as usual, there are links in the show notes. Um, King Leopold's Ghost was actually really good. Um, horrifying really good and the unbuttoned history podcast episodes are brief but it it encapsulates the most important information so what we know um king leopold king of belgium uh, he really 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 wanted to have a colony he just wanted a colony uh belgium's really small he wanted a massive colony, and he, he, he tried all over the world um, first, and finally um, Africa seemed like the best place to go. The Congo seemed like the best place to go, um, <laughs> and it's he tried to buy colonies everywhere, and nobody would sell to him, so that's when he finally stumbled across, across Africa and uh, the Congo. Now... <sighs> What this this really this goes on from a period of about eighteen eighty five to about nineteen oh eight, and just the worst atrocities that can be imagined happened um, in what was then the Congo Free State. Now, like I said, it was a colony. It was under the personal rule of King Leopold II of Belgium, not the country. It was his. The country had <laughs> no say over what happened. Belgium didn't have any say over this colony. Um, it was only Leopold's. So. Leopold's colony with the rubber and the ivory. Um, now, sometimes um, it's it's been referred to as Congo horrors, um, and this, this has a lot to do. The things that happened there largely happened because of the rubber and the ivory trade. That was it was labor, it was labor issues, it was exportation issues. Um, but unfortunately, as often happens with colonialism with the invasions of outsiders into a relatively uh, insular community. Uh, There was disease. There was famine as people spread across the land like locusts. And usually what follows in the wake of this kind of disease and this famine and death and destruction is going to be um, just plummeting birth rates uh, because of this. So the, all of this contributed together to just lay waste to the Congolese population. Um, and the, the estimates that are given is that um, it, it kind of varies. I mean, they say that the population fall was anywhere between 1 and 15 million people. 
Um, I'm sure there's better numbers out there. But what happened, so here's what happened. There was a conference from 1884 to 1885, and European powers, with no Africans involved in any way from any place in Africa, much less the Congo, uh, European powers decided to um, take the Congo Basin region, and they put it under the protection of a, uh, a private, um, quote-unquote, charitable philanthropic organization that Leopold had created and was running. Um, and the, the territory that he was going to control was about a million square miles of the Congo. It's a pretty big area. It's a pretty big area. The whole river basin, about a million square miles. And so this, this million square miles just filled with disease and death and destruction because of what's happening to it and it's got a tiny this little group of white administrators from different parts of the world and one of which Henry Morton Stanley is is crazy someone needs to do a podcast just about him that dude was just epic and shady in a 19th century way that you don't well I was gonna say you don't really see now but I guess we do see now um moving on so there was a whole lot of it wasn't really it wasn't really profitable um and it was always getting really it was always hanging really close to bankruptcy until rubber natural rubber became very important um and we i mean rubber is in so much of our lives now that we don't think about it it's everywhere it's in every aspect of our lives but back then i mean bike tires bicycles were becoming a really big thing um cars were already starting to be invented so car tires bicycle tires um wellies rain i mean everything rubber was going to be able to be used for so many applications and so obviously there's going to be a huge huge demand for it as people started to really figure out what it could be used for and it was very very abundant in the territory and the territory had people they weren't all decimated yet there were still plenty of and this is where the issues come in because all the people that were there and all the rubber that was there that was built in workforce um, they had to extract it. They had to export it. Um, so, what basically the Congo Basin? It was it was nationalized. There was um, some of it dis- distributed out to different private companies. The state kept some of it. Um, and basically, from about 1891 to about 1906, these companies they could do what they wanted. There wasn't really a whole lot of policing. There wasn't really a whole lot of um, watchdogging. There was no OSHA. There was nobody to keep an eye on what was happening. And so there was forced labor, and there was coercion, and it was violent because they wanted the rubber as cheap as possible for as much money as possible. Um, And in the process, um, somebody got the idea to create a a paramilitary uh, force, a native force called the Force Publique, that would enforce the labor policies. And as is going to happen with people who don't want to be forced to work, uh, there were plenty who refused to to work. They didn't want to do this. They didn't want to participate in the rubber collection. So they were killed and their villages were raised. And um, as can happen with European, um, American, white administrators in savage countries um they were assholes they were sadistic they were assholes they did horrible 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 things shocking i know 
And all this just kind of went on um, with King Leopold in the background saying, this is my philanthropic organization. And he's doing such wonderful things for the Congo. And he's helping so many people. And all of this is kind of going on behind the scenes. So, um, even with all of this going on, um, there were illnesses. There was smallpox. There was swine flu. There was dysentery. There was sleeping sickness. Um, it was destroying the populations. And um, one of the numbers I found said that it's estimated that just in 1901, um, sleeping sickness killed about half a million of the Congolese. So, again, this was reducing the birth rate. Um, and, and one thing that, um, I don't know why this, this one thing was what finally caused people to take notice, but um, the severing of workers' hands. When they refused to work, their hands were cut off. I don't... I, their hands were cut off. They were... Most of the time they were killed... Um, and this was done a lot of the time by force public soldiers. And they were, one thing that I read said they were every, uh, they had to account for every shot by bringing back the hands of the victims. So this started to be recorded by Christian missionaries in the Congo. Um, and this did cause great public outrage um, when it became known throughout you know, Europe and England and the U.S. And so another campaign began. Now, this campaign began in uh, 1890 um, under a British activist named E.D. Morrell. And that, that began in 1890, but like I said before, um, between 1891 and 1906, all of this shit was still happening. So, but in 1890, people started getting pissed off, but again, this was, you know, before Twitter, before Facebook, before viral videos, before CNN and outrage could spread around the world in, you know, 10 minutes. Things took time. It seems like this took a long time, but things took time. So, uh, pressure started to be put on the Belgian government, and so they decided to annex the Congo Free State, and they formed the Belgian Congo supposedly ended a lot of the, uh, the systems that were creating the abuse, and there's, um, again, nobody can really, just, it's kind of like the, the witch trials in Europe in the Middle Ages, nobody can really agree on a number of just how many people died, and there's actually even, um, a debate over whether it constitutes genocide, and the reason for that, the Holocaust is considered a genocide because it was a systematic and purposeful wiping out of Jewish people and the Romani and homosexuals and undesirables. This was less um, idealistic and more business-related. Um, these people that died, they weren't wiped out because of a belief system. They were wiped out because um, the inherent inhumanity of business. I don't know if that's better or if that's worse, but that's when you hear that there's an argument over whether it's genocide or not. That's why genocide I, it's technically is is systematic, it's ideological, there's a, you know, it, it's, it's meant to happen. The, in, in the Congo, most of the deaths were an after effect. They were a symptom of what was happening. They weren't the purpose. 
So, um, more and more people started to finally pay attention to all of these people that were dying. More people are looking at King Leopold, and they were trying to get him to just completely renounce all control over the Congo. Um, and a lot of this was coming from uh, Swedish missionaries and British missionaries that were working there at the time. Um, and then international protests began to occur. And there was an American, George Washington William, who published a letter, an open letter to uh, Leopold about what he had personally seen there. And so things started to pick up and to pick up. And um, mute. Reports of mutilations were coming out, and the Americans and the Europeans were hearing about the hands being cut off. And so this began to be called the Congo question. And so Leopold, philanthropist and humanitarian that he was, instigated a commission for the protection of natives. Um, It was mostly foreign missionaries, but they really didn't do anything um, substantial in the ways of, of reform and change and people not dying and having their limbs cut off anymore. Now, in Britain, as I mentioned before, um, the campaign was led by a man named Edie Morrell, and he wrote a book in 1906 called Red Rubber, um, which reached a lot of people, and so the campaign started to pull in some pretty prominent people, including Mark Twain, um, Arthur Conan Doyle, Emile Vanderveld, who was a Belgian socialist, and Interestingly, Joseph Conrad, and again, we'll talk about him later. Um, So, campaigning groups started (laughs) the Congo Reform Association. They're interesting because um, they didn't necessarily want to end colonialism. They just wanted to um, end the excessive behaviors that were happening. So... All of this is happening. All of this arguing is going back, going on back and forth, and people are still dying in the Congo. And so in 1908, uh, Belgium did formally annex the territory. Again, that's when they created the Belgian Congo. Conditions um, did improve once the, the forced labor was ended, um, but uh, it did say that there are um, many of the officials who had worked there kept their posts. Um, and again, we've talked about the genocide. Is it genocide? Is it not? Um, I, I, I mean, it wasn't. A, it wasn't a cleansing. It wasn't anything. Um, it, like I said before, it wasn't ideological. But I don't know. Um, this is a United Nations definition of genocide um, from 1948. It's still. I don't know. That's that's another issue. That's a, another discussion for another day. But a lot of people died is, is the gist of all of that. And after having read all that I did read um, and listening to everything, it almost seems like a justification by saying that extermination was, you know, they weren't trying to exterminate anybody. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they weren't trying to exterminate hordes and hordes of people. They did. They mutilated people, they killed people, they spread diseases. I mean, and there were, you know, attempts to to try to stop um, the spread of disease. And there's also, I know some of the, there's a, some of the violence has been attributed to um, different groups within the region, African groups within the region that were trying to um, get back at each other for long dead things. Um, but 
the point is that whether it was intentional or not, just an unbelievable amount of people were killed. Um, the collateral damage was insane. The land was ravaged. And it was, it was horrific. It was just appalling that these things happened and then it took so long, even back then, that it took so long for somebody to realize what was going on. And in recent years, there have been some, there's been more debate um, about this. The, um, there's a historian called Robert Weisbord, and in 2003, he wrote an article um, stating that intent should not be um, a qualifier when it comes to genocide. It doesn't matter if that's what they intended to do. That's what they did. And um, interestingly, in 2005, the British House of Commons introduced a motion to call for a recognition of it as colonial genocide, and they called on the Belgian government to issue a formal apology. Um, so it took a long time. <laughs> And again, academics still debate over behavior um, that took place in the Congo um, and indeed and across all of Africa because one of the things that we hear so much, um, especially when studying um, studying slavery, studying the, the, the mid-Atlantic slave trade and the Dutch and the Portuguese who started going into Africa and pulling people out is that well, they were doing it to each other. They were selling each other to the slavers. And as with any tribal group, any group at all, yes, there's going to be atrocities. There's going to be warfare. They're going to take, take each other as slaves. It's happened all over the world from time immemorial. Native, you know, the, the indigenous people of America, the Native Americans have done it. The British tribes did it to each other. The tribes in Europe before they became Germany and France they did it to each other Every, they, everyone has done it to each other the difference here is that so many people started getting yanked out of Africa on such an unbelievable scale it was, it was insane it was just just masses and masses and masses of people were being pulled out and sold to, to the one point that one of the early kings, um, when the Portuguese first came in, one of the early kings commented, <laughs> "There's just there was going to be nobody left." And yes, he he did you know initially start, or he was initially involved with the trade, but they they weren't stopping. They just kept grabbing more and more and more people and just reducing the interior population, um, in their quest to build up the new world and in the process trample all over even more people um, so the argument that well they did it to each other doesn't hold water like I said slavery's always been around it was the activities that begin to take place from the mid-Atlantic slave trade and bringing them to America and to um, the islands that was I'm not a scholar as far as ancient Rome goes, but the things that I have read, Rome did the same thing. Rome trampled all over the world. Uh, Rome took slaves. Rome brought them back to, you know, the, the Roman soldiers, they brought slaves back. There were differences, though, in that you could become a soldier, you could get your freedom. There were, there were chances to gain your freedom. Uh, it wasn't... 
it wasn't the same. Even the Vikings had policies for their where their slaves could could buy their freedom. I mean, there were there were rules. That doesn't make it any better. Nothing makes slavery better. But the American slave trade was different in a way that's. It was so much worse, and while Britain did abolish slavery in the early 1800s, they still were going into, again, Africa and India and doing things that were very, very close to slavery in the name of civilization and progress. So nobody is... Well, nobody is necessarily innocent in this. Um, I think we can give the African interior, the African tribes, a pass <laughs> on the selling of their own people. There's no way they could have known what was going to happen, and there's no way they could have known that they were going to be taken away, thousands of miles away, to an inhospitable place where they would be abused and tortured, um, and live horrible, miserable lives, and that things wouldn't be a whole lot better a few hundred years later. So, moving on. Um, what we have from here, uh, what Nizi Shaw has done, and the reason that you needed to know all of that, Nizi Shaw chose, um, a certain moment right in here, uh, in the late 1800s. That is her moment of divergence. That is her, her moment of steampunk alternate history, um, split apart. She, um, in her book, uh, The Fabian Society is, um, in her book, and they were a real, real society. They were a real British group, a socialist group. Then they did eventually lead to the formation of the Labor Party, and they helped found the New Statesman's Magazine. Um, but eventually, what they would in real life, they endowed a college that, in going on to become the London School of Economics, it's very famous. In the book, they don't do that. Instead, they use. Um, their money, their their reserves of cash, to actually purchase huge uh, chunks of land from Leopold, in order to create a safe haven um, from people that are trying to get away from Leopold, the you know, the the um, natives that were trying to get away, as well as they were also going to the Fabians take on um, African. Uh, even though the Fabians are socialist and atheist. They partner up with some African-American missionaries to um, found a nation that's going to be called Everfair. Now, it's within the borders of the Congo that is still held by Leopold. Um, and again, the land had been stolen. The land was stolen. So there is a king called Mwende, um, and there was a king called Mwende uh, earlier, and he is going to work with the, the Fabian Society and the missionaries at first. Um, and the steampunk will begin to flow. Um, and they will begin to work against Leopold. And now, as with anything, when you put too many people together of too many differing um, ideologies, there's going to be a problem. Um, there's going to be fights. Uh, things are going are gonna to split apart, and it's not going to be pretty. So we are going to go deeper into um, Everfair itself because there's a lot of people in this book. There's so many people. And she hits so many different hot spots and high points, and it's, it's really incredible for, for a relatively short book. Um, so we are going to 
take just a moment to listen to a promo from one of my dear, dear friends. Then we will have a little musical morale booster, and we will come back with part two of Neasy Shawl's Everfair. A body falls past the window. Whatever. <laughs> and you put, put it down, and you feel like shaky all over. Both your hands are covered. Immediately peg him as a cogman. So we've known each other for years. It's Sumeshi. One of the knives is missing from a garter hilt because it is being pressed to your throat. Damn. We had a... Oh, my God. So you took money from him, huh? We talked about this earlier. He was being attacked by the forces of the American Confederation. Are you constantly checking for traps? The Steamrollers Adventure Podcast is available at rigstories.com or on iTunes. You can also get it at Stitcher and Google Play. What do we want? Freedom. When do we want it? Welcome back, my friends. That was Freedom by Taina Asili. 
and that is available at the Free Music Archive. I would also highly encourage you to look her up on YouTube, and yes, the link is in the show notes. Uh, she has some really amazing videos, and I think I might be in love. Um, and having said that, on with the show. So, Everfair. <laughs> in one book that is less than 400 pages, Nizi Shaw has managed to blend together racism, colonialism, genocide, socialism, religion and spirituality, disability, uh, LGBTQ issues, and technology. I'm not even kidding. It's all in there. And it works. And when I've mentioned, I've mentioned a couple times now about the sheer number of characters that are in this book, I'm not kidding. Um, but they're all kind of move around each other. Um, what we, the ones we really kind of come in contact with first, and I think that we get to know really the best, um, is, and I'm going to try to say this the best that I can, there is uh, Lisette Tutornier, and there is, uh, she's a young French woman, and what comes out slowly, and is, she, you know, it will affect her life, it affects how she, um, reacts to the people around her, how she, um, moves through the novel and the relationships that she has with people, um, is that she has one black African grandfather. Uh, she tries to keep it quiet when it's brought up to her, um, by another character, by, uh, an African-American character It's brought up. And she says, well, you know, and Lizette's response is that, you know, he was one, you know, why does the fact that I have, you know, one-sixteenth in me? And the response is, well, I think it's a little more than one-sixteenth. Um, but she doesn't talk about it. And she is very young, and she's seduced by a man named Laurie Albin. He's British. He is a member of the Fabian Society, the Fabian Socialist that we discussed before. Now, he already has a wife named Daisy Albin, who's about 15 years older than Lisette, and he also has a quote-unquote secretary, uh, Ellen, so they are involved in an open relation, an open marriage, um, and Lisette's not really sure that she even is in love with Lori so much as she just wants to get out of her home. So she goes back to England with him, and what ends up happening is that she actually falls very, very deeply in love with the wife, uh, Daisy, and vice versa. And it's it's something that's going to keep them together and pull them apart back and forth um, throughout their lives. It's, it's troubled. They hurt each other. Um, when... Certain things come up, including um, the fact that Lisette has um, African blood in her. There's cultural assumptions that are made. Um, it's all very dramatic. But their interactions with each other, their back and forth, um, kind of encapsulates and encompasses the, the greater issues that are going on in the story, if that makes sense. Um, but again, like I said, that's, we, you know, right here at the beginning with this couple, we've got um, open marriages. Uh, we have, like I said, lesbian and bisexual issues. 
We have the fact that Lori can't can't decide what he wants. Um, it's it's all weirdly normal though. I don't know. It works. It works really well. Um, and there are other people that are moving through here. I mentioned before Mawenda and his uh, favorite wife Justina. Um, king Mawenda is king of the region and of the region that had been sold um, by Leopold. And then we also got Thomas Jefferson Wilson. Uh, he was a former military officer in America. He's a, and also a missionary. Very, very religious, very Christian. Um, but through a series of events within the novel, he manages to find himself the avatar of um, a local deity, an indigenous deity. Um, and then we've also got um, Ho Lin, Ho Lin Wong. I don't want to say that wrong. He's also known as Tink. He is um, he is, he brings the steampunk. He's an engineer. He's an inventor. Um, he is making prosthetic limbs for the laborers who have been amputated because they didn't want to be laborers. But he also. Um, brings in some other things. He had escaped some, uh, escaped a, another labor camp, um, an East Asian labor camp that was being run by, um, allies of Leopold. So he runs to Everfair, which was the purpose of Everfair. Everfair is there to take in the refugees, um, from wherever they're from. It's a novel, thought taking in refugees and people that need homes and assistance that's crazy but he ends up becoming um the leading scientist in the burgeoning nation he's um, an industrial genius and an innovator and he <laughs> like i said he creates this whole collection of detachable metal arms for the amputees for the the Again, and here we have the disabled survivors. Um, they're multifunctional. They're metal. <laughs> so he, he, gets, he creates that to take care of them. He creates flying canoes, um, which become a, a, basically a, an air force of uh, anti-colonial airships. And we know that I love airships so much. Um, so we've got Tink. Like I said, he brings the steampunk. Tink brings the steam. Um, Mwenda is brilliant, and his favorite wife, Josina, is not to be fucked with. Thomas Jefferson Wilson is just trying to find a place for the people and gets wound up in uh, indigenous supernatural affairs. So, like I said, we've got the religious and the spirituality going on. Um... And then, and again, that's that's that encapsulates another over overarching issue of the Christianity versus the ingrained and inborn spirituality um, that Christianity was trying to crush, for want of a better term. They call it, you know, proselytizing. They call it being missionaries. They call it witnessing. Call it what you will. It's telling someone that their religion is wrong, and this other religion is better, and, uh, so, 
that's like I said. There are there are a lot of things that are going on here that speak to the larger theme of the du- dualism, the the two worlds colliding and not necessarily merging. Um, but who's going to survive? You know, at the very end. But there are other there. Like I said, <laughs> that's not all. There are a lot of other people. Um, there's there are several founders of Everfair. Um, there are some Western characters. There's a Scottish playwright named Matthew Jameson, um, who uh, uses his his, um, his writing and his creative skills, and he is in love with uh, a beautiful woman with a clockwork hand named Fuwindi. Um, again, there is Daisy. Um, Daisy herself is a poet, uh, and she's a mother, and when she... There, there will be an eventual split between Daisy and Lori, and Lori and Ellen will go back with the children. There's, there's a lot of children involved here, and it took me a little. Actually, it took me a bit to figure out who's who was mother to who. Um, there are anti-slavery advocates that are going to uh, make an appearance. Um, let's see. There is uh, Martha Olivia Hunter. She wants to save souls. Very Christian, wants to save souls. She's the one that speaks to Lizette about her um, her roots, her grandfather, and tells her that it's probably more than just a 16th. Um, she is, as with most of the women in this book, very formidable, not to be fucked with. Um, and then there's, again, Moendez moving through here. Um... That's not it. The reason that the 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 wealth of characters can be a little jarring is because this book is I should have mentioned before. It's not just the the, the characters; it's the multiple points of view. Um, it shifts constantly from Lizette. It goes to um, Daisy. We've got Lori. We've got everybody. It moves all around. Um, and it can be a little bit confusing. So I wasn't kidding when I said the Audible actually makes it a little bit better because it, even though it's one narrator, she does vary her pitch and her tone and her accents. So it, it makes it a little easier to keep it all straight because it, it, it can be a little jarring. However, it's worth it. I, you just For people like me, I read really, really fast um, just out of habit. I'm 41. It's what I've done all my life. So this is one of those books where I actually have to stop and put on the brakes and slow down <laughs> and read a little slower. And it's okay. It's one book. There's no sequels yet. So take your time. Um, because there are so... She has taken all of these issues that we have discussed in all the previous episodes and, and put them into one book and wrapped them around each other and woven them together to create this amazing story and it is steampunk I mean it's it's steampunk is all around it and um something that I wanted to do like I said it's a, this one's just a little different um I was curious about why she did it so there was an interview that she did um with Gregory Wren a steampunk chronicle literary editor you can find it online um this was back in September of 2016, so about a year ago. Um, and she said the reason that she did it, because this was a little different from her other her other works, and um, 
She said that she ended up on a panel, a steampunk panel, at a 2009 World Fantasy Convention, and that kind of caused her to really take a deeper look at uh, why she didn't like steampunk, because she didn't. She didn't like it. She didn't like the, the imperialism. She thought it was, the, it was too wrapped up with it. Um, and she <laughs> says in her interview that she sprang this on the other panelists, and then she promised rather recklessly to write a steampunk novel set in Leopold's Congo. Um, she, apparently Michael Swantwick, uh, did not appreciate this, rolled her eyes, rolled his eyes at her, and she said she'd make him beg to read it. And I hope she, I hope he did. So, she chose the Congo because, um, because of Leopold, because of what happened, uh, because it was, as she says, rightly so, it was one of the worst humanitarian disasters in history. And so... What she says is that she wanted to work with the horror um, and juxtapose it with that, that, and I love this part, the sense of adventure inherent in steampunk. And to me, that's right there encapsulates everything about steampunk that I love. The, the, or the steampunk that I love, the, the books that I love, is that the horror and the adventure and putting them together and seeing both and both can exist together and they can make you see each side better. Um, so she didn't really want a whole lot of bad guys. She said, um, Leopold was the bad guy. Um, so she wanted to focus on the people who were trying, even if imperfectly to make things better um, now, there was the, the, the fact that there is mysticism in this. As I mentioned, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson Wilson, he does become an avatar for Luongo. Um, and then Fohendi has the ability to ride cats, the woman with the clockwork hand. Fohendi's beautiful. I love her. Um, so it did mix... Um, Kind of like Clockwork Century, or not Clockwork Century, um, the Alchemy Wars. It does mix the magical, it does mix the metaphysical, metaphysical with the, the science and the steam, um, and I I like that. I think that's I think, I've seen it done wrong, and I've seen it done very very well, and I think she did a good job because, and I don't want to go into the the mystical magical black man that tends to show up in movies to take the white man on his journey. Um, that's not how I see Africa, but Africa is the root of a lot of very, very ancient pagan beliefs, non-Christian, pre-Christian beliefs. Um, some of the spiritualism that I um, delve into has that in it. I'm a pagan, so I I do see... I do think it was a good mix. I think she blended it well. Um, like I said, much like with Alchemy Wars, the, the European alchemy fit in with that. The the spiritual um, avatar of Luanga, uh, Luango fit in well with this. Um, now, she she says that, like, with Fuendi's being able to ride the cats, that's, that's a, a, a genetic, it's a family-based thing. Um... And she based it on the legends of uh, Kenyan royal houses who had, you know, similar relationships with lions. Um, so that is where that came from. And 
she wanted to use the occult elements to, she says that she was trying to make it more realistic because for her, they're also a part of her everyday life. Um, and I think that's when people read about the magical and the mystical and the spiritual, there are people out there who are not Christian or Muslim or Jewish. Some of them, some of us actually do believe in the magical and the mystical and the spiritual outside of Christianity. So for some of us, it is a part of our everyday lives and for her it is. And I think it's wonderful that she would put that in there. Um, so, she, the book itself, um, the other thing I forgot to mention, because I always forget to mention things, I'm sorry, I'm old and my memory's terrible, and I have a cat climbing on me right now, so my apologies, um, someone let a large ginger beast, oh, into the bunker, and he needs love, um, the book takes place over not only a whole lot of characters and points of view, but a large span of time, um, we start in the late 1800s, and we end, um, just around World War One, um, thereabouts. So it does take place over a pretty broad span of time. So again, you're going to need to put on the brakes and slow down and really pay attention to what you're reading. But it is worth it because it's good. It deserves a deep, uh, meaningful read. And what I was excited as I was reading this um, interview is that there is a sequel in the works. Um, it's under consideration, is what she said last year, um, just after World War One. So I'm very excited for that. Um, I'm I'm a fan of the the trilogy. I can't help it. I like it. I don't like to say goodbye to beloved characters. Um, but she says that the the next battle is a, a continued struggle versus colonialism. So I, I look forward to that. Um, but she did a beautiful job with this. She really did. I mean, it's, again, it's one of those, I always have a hard time summarizing these for you guys, I think, and I don't know if I always, I don't know if I ever do a good job because the books that I choose are so rich and so packed with information and adventure and excitement, but they're also really, really thick with, meaning and thematic overtones and issues that need to be unpacked and she like I said to me what I saw the strongest in this was was the the duality especially for Lizette um with her hidden African relative and um with Daisy initially you know being in a relationship with Lori an open relationship with Lori and then learning that she was in love with Lisette or with Thomas Jefferson Wilson, the African-American, you know, soldier and minister who comes to Africa and becomes a, a you know, a spiritual avatar for an African god. Everybody, it, it exemplifies the dual natures that we all have, that everyone has. No one is just any one thing. No one is all... Not no one. Most people are not all good or all bad. We are all huge combinations of everything. And I like to believe that for the most part, most people are trying to do good, even if they don't always do it in the right way. But the, you know, the wrong thing done for the right reason is still the wrong thing. Um, but I think that she, she brings these struggles of these people all together and shows how sometimes 
even if we all have different upbringings, I mean, we have, you know, a white woman from, from England and um, a mixed woman from France and the African-American soldier and the African king and, you know, Fuendi with her clockwork arm and her, write, you know, her cat writing. Everybody's complicated. Everybody has issues. Everybody has something that they have to, that they're learning to deal with. But sometimes you can bring that all together and fight for what is right. And in this case, fighting for what was right was getting Leopold the fuck out of Africa because he did do really bad things. Oh, and that was the other thing I forgot to mention in the first part. Uh, Leopold actually never went to Africa. That's the other atrocious thing about all this. All of this was done in his name, under his direction. He never went. He wasn't there. He didn't see it. He didn't actually do any of this. It doesn't ex- it doesn't excuse anything. But yeah, he never. I, I, as far as I know, I believe. I don't think I'm. I could be wrong because, like again, if I forget things, but I don't. He never set foot in Africa. Um, probably for the best. Um, and again, I had mentioned um, Conrad, and the reason that I keep bringing him up, and the reason I'm bringing him up now, it's not because I want to. Um, shunt Neasy Shaw aside, the reason that I'm bringing him up is because of her coverage of Africa and the Congo at this time versus Conrad is the most common one that we know of. Um, if you grew up, I don't know if they still read it in high school. Um, I couldn't really find any answers. Um, nobody responded on Twitter about it, but we read it in high school. I read it in high school, and we didn't talk about what was going on around it. All we talked about was the actual book itself and the themes and the language and the journey and what it really means. We didn't, we didn't discuss what it was about. We didn't discuss why the journey was being made. We didn't discuss why people were there, white people were there, Europeans were there in the Congo to begin with. And... The, the issue that we have is that um, everybody delves into, in school, we all talk about the psychological aspects of Heart of Darkness, and we don't pay attention to what Conrad is talking about as far as what's happening around him. Now, the argument can be made that his recounting was accurate as far as what was happening, Um but it was it was very little of a discussion, and it was really, really, really racist. Um, take issue with that, if you will. Um, and it, there have been people who have taken issue with that, with Conrad being called a racist. But one of the arguments that I've heard, um, when Conrad discusses... People will say that it's not racist because he talks about white people too and he, he talks about the horrible, horrible things that white people do. But basically what he's saying is that, that white people, in my opinion, this is my opinion and not just mine, there are others and we'll get to that in a minute. But what he's basically saying is that white people have learned to control the savage inside them and that they like to go to Africa because then they can let it out just like the savages that are already there. So yes, while he is making it known about the atrocities that are taking place. He's also still calling the inhabitants savages. (laughs) It doesn't make it better. It doesn't mean that he's not a racist just because he says, look at the bad things that are happening. It's still 
really uncool. Um, and this has, it, it's, it's becoming more and more criticized in post-colonial studies, but this isn't new. Um, back in the 70s, there's actually, if you want to read a really, really, really good book about colonialism and what it has done to people in Africa, um, I would highly recommend Chinua Achebe's um, Things Fall Apart. I read it a few years ago for an anthropology class and wrote a paper on it. It was amazing. Um, but Achebe is Nigerian, not Congolese. He's Nigerian, but the point stands that uh, he did a lecture in 1975 called An Image of Africa, Racism in Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And he did describe it as an offensive and deplorable book that dehumanized Africans. Um, and he described Conrad as, quote, blinkered with xenophobia. And he incorrectly depicted Africa as the antithesis of Europe and civilization. Um, and completely ignoring the art, the art and the accomplishments of the Fang people who live in the Congo River Basin and lived there at the time of... Heart of Darkness's publication. He, basically, Conrad pulled out the depiction of the people that would appeal most to Europeans, even while calling white people bad. Um, and so it, it promoted, and still to this day, because as far as I know, kids still read this in school, so it continues to promote this prejudicial image of Africa, um, and that is completely unfounded. So much beautiful art has come out of Africa. Um, Take a look at Picasso and where he got his ideas. Just go look it up. Um, pause. Go find it. Take take a take a good look at the art that was coming out that was beginning to become popular in the early nineteen hundreds. It wasn't just straight out of the minds of Europeans. It was coming from someplace, and it's rarely credited. Now, like I said, this is this idea was starting to has beginning is beginning to gain traction. More more people are beginning to see that it's it's offensive, it's rude, um, and I, there's links in the show notes for Ashby's paper. Um, but what killed me, what absolutely murdered me when I was studying this, um, and I'm not going to name him. This person that I'm about to quote to you. Um, because I don't think he deserves it. And when I was discussing this with my, with my mentor, um, with Dr. B, and she said, we brought, I brought this up to her, and she said that this is, this is a known, that, you know, it's, I'm, I'm late to the game on this, um, you know, for whatever that's worth. But, yeah, this has been, she, she knew exactly who I was talking about, so I'm not naming him here. I don't think he needs that. Um, but what kills me is that a white male American academic um, wrote his own paper in which he stated that uh, Chinua Ashabi doesn't know how to read a novel and that uh, of greater import is the consideration that he has a great deal of company in his determination to bring to the novel ideological preconceptions and a not-so-hidden political agenda. Um, and what he says is that um, basically... It, every the academics, academia, and these these storied novels are being ripped apart um, and displaced by structuralist, deconstructionist, feminist, black feminist, Marxist, Freudian, and new historicist critics 
who all of whom seem, like Ashaby, to have reached predetermined conclusions, conclusions before they sit down to read the novel. Okay, fuck that. I read this in high school. I hated it then. I have gone back over it. I actually checked it out from my library to go back over it and make sure I wasn't crazy. It's fucked. It's racist. And it's wrong. <laughs> in this this tone-deaf idea that we... And I, I did this, too, for a long time. It was the, well, things were different back then. Attitudes were different back then. We have to look at it the way they were back then. No. Because this was the late 1900s, early 20th century. Attitudes were a-changing already. <laughs> we knew what racism was. So this idea... The, the, that, the, this idea of the way they thought back then, I think for me, once we hit the age of industrialization and the age of enlightenment, once, I think once we hit the 1800s, the idea of back then doesn't hold water anymore because too many ideas were changing. Too many people were were realizing not enough clearly, but people were realizing what was right and what was wrong. So no, that's a bullshit argument. Conrad was a racist. Um, I love you know and I, I liked his character his character as Korsnowski in the you know the Nomad of the Time Streams books, but Conrad himself kind of a dick. Um, so there is that for you. Um, and the reason, again, that I bring up the Heart of Darkness to begin with is because there's a right way and a wrong way to write about certain groups of people in certain places. And the way that Nizi Shaw has done it is epically right and beautiful. Um, it's just, it's gorgeous. And it gives agency to so many different groups and so many blends of groups and so many people um, it's powerful, kind of making me cry thinking about it because it's so good. It's powerful. It's not very long. Um, the audiobook is gorgeous. Or the, you know, the regular printed word book, if you're a traditionalist. Um, I'm not because I'm old and I like audiobooks because it's easier, or at least my Kindle. But everybody's different. Um, I know I'm a librarian. I'm probably going to be burned at the stake for saying that, but it's true. Um... But I highly recommend it. Um, Nizi Shaw has done something beautiful, and we need more of her. We need more people of color kicking the steampunk into a place where it needs to be um, and knocking some of the stage tried and true off the shelf. Um, Because steampunk can be anything. Steampunk is what we make of it. And she has made something amazing, so I highly recommend it. Um, and if she does indeed release a, uh, sequel, we will go back in and we will revisit and, um, see how she did and what will change from there. So, um, I do believe that is all I have to say about that. Um, let me know what I said right. Let me know what I said wrong. I know I say this every week and I'll say it again in, uh, the wrap-up, but, Talk to me, people. Talk to me. Um, you know, I'm doing the best I can. I'm, I'm feeling along as I go. Um, trying to bring some things out. 
you know, I, I didn't, I started this with hope you know, maybe I'd reach a few people. I don't know how many of you I've actually reached. I hope it's a few. I hope you listen and you enjoy it. And my cat is breaking things. So, <laughs> with that, we will move on to the wrap-up. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion really does matter, and it does have an impact on how many people can find us. Don't be shy. Reach out. Review the show. Find me on Facebook or Twitter. Let me know what you think. We would also like to add a very special thank you to Alec, who doesn't know the meaning of the word moderation, and that's why we all adore him so much. If you would like to contribute your vocal tones to our intro, we would really like that, and it's super easy. You just need the voice recorder on your smartphone and a can-do attitude. Please email, <laughs> please email me at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com with the subject line intro offer, and I'll send you the script and instructions. And with that, we're done. We'll see you in two weeks for Silence in the Library, or Why Burning, Banning, and Burying Are Not Effective Methods of Thought Control with Rachel Kane's The Great Library series. The Steampunk Dollhouse is a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0 international license. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt Davis. Additional assistance provided by Josephine Davis, who, much like Toto, blessed the rain down in Africa. Our intro music is Baby, I'm Not Your Lady by Sing and Sadie. Our exit music is Goodnight by the Knickerbocker Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Being overrun by book burners and golf playing demagogues? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at spdhpod. Want to help keep the library generators fueled? Visit our support page at spdhpod.com. Any contributions you can give will be amazing and sincerely appreciated and will enable us to begin making kick-ass, bunker-buster merchandise as soon as possible. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue Stocking out. Rouge. Stiffer. Tata.